This is They Create Worlds, episode 61. Game. Carmen San Diego. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be. A land that's called reality. You'll find me there. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alec. Hello. Well, we're hot on the case now. That's right. We've figured out who's been stealing all the stuff from around here. We've got our audio equipment back. We just need to hunt down the person who did it. And that means we just need one more thing, Jeff. A world almanac. Oh, okay. Um, We get those on Amazon, right? I suppose so. Does anyone even read World Almanacs anymore? I'm sure they're still made, but does anyone even read them anymore? I don't know. I think people just use Wikipedia as a World Almanac now. That's probably quite true, for better or worse. (laughs) But long, long ago, you did not have this magical box that was hooked up via a series of tubes to other magical boxes around the world and then transferred little pieces of information around all of these series of tubes until it appeared on the magical box sitting in front of you. Back in those days, you could actually make a whole game out of figuring out weird, obscure stuff about places. And Broderbund did exactly that. Not only make a game, but television shows, and a cartoon, I think. Yes. And... Pretty much a long, huge franchise that still is there today, but Mm -hmm. nowhere near the prominence that it used to have back in the 90s. No. When they made this first game in that series, no one was thinking any of that. Nobody was planning a franchise. No one was even planning to be educational. It just kind of happened. Which is kind of odd. You always think the educational game. Oh, right. They're like, okay, we want. An educational game. Yeah, we like geography. We <laughs> like history. And what, what's another thing? Math. Yeah, we need some math in there. <laughs> so we'll make an entire game based on that. Instead of it just being a typing thing, we'll just have you hunt down this criminal. Sure. And you know, if they had made it that way, honestly, it would have probably just died. No one would have cared. You know, edutainment... And this is a time when this game was being made, 1985, that edutainment as a concept was only just beginning. There had been some educational games, but that word edutainment was just kind of coming into use. And already, I think, even after it was first coming into use, it was already a dirty word. Nobody that had any kind of (laughs) self-respect was making edutainment products. And Broderbund certainly was not either. Broderbund was making entertainment products and some home productivity stuff as well, but they were not making edutainment products. And I think that that's probably the only reason why it became so successful, because if they had gone into it thinking, we're going to create a game that teaches about geography and cultures and history, I think if they'd gone in with that idea, then it would have probably flopped, because you can always tell the games where they start with an educational premise instead of starting with a fun premise. Yeah, they tend to be not fun, and if they're not fun, then you're not going to play them. That's right. 
So to start off here, we're not going to go through the entire history of Brotherbund and everything, where this is more focused on the specific franchise of Carmen Sandiego. So where in Brotherbund's history did this originally start? Absolutely. So we do have to give kind of a light overview of, of Broderbund and where the computer game industry was at this time to kind of understand the forces that came together to develop it. We'll save the in-depth history of Broderbund, of course, for another episode sometime in the distant future. Broderbund was one of the earliest of the entertainment software companies. It was founded by two brothers, and it really... More than any other company in the business, it was really a family company. I mean, Sierra was established by a husband and wife team. So in that sense, it was a family company. And then, you know, the owner's brother also was a part of the company. But it was never a family company. Ken Williams, as we discussed in our Sierra episodes, was a guy that was all about making money. He was ambitious. It was a vehicle to make money. It just happened to be founded by family members. Broderbund was different. It really was different. The brothers who founded the company, their father had been a minister in the Midwest. So they were very religious people, but compassionate religious, friendly religious, not some Bible-thumping, damnation and hellfire everywhere, everyone's a sinner, blah, 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 blah. Right. It wasn't like that. They were really, and are, they're still alive. I shouldn't speak of them in the past tense. They are just really... Decent, kind, humble, Midwestern, spiritual people. That's who they are. And everyone who's worked with them that I've ever seen an interview with has commented on just how decent the Carlston brothers were, Doug and Gary, and still are. Just fantastic people. Doug was a lawyer that was burnt out on being a lawyer. First, he was a high-priced lawyer in Chicago. He got burnt out on that, so he became a backwoods lawyer in Maine. Still got burnt out on the law and decided that he needed to do something else with his life. He had gotten a Trash 80, TRS-80 computer, in order to kind of keep track of some of his legal stuff. Discovered that he liked programming it, and he programmed a few simple games. Now, Doug Carlston is not a creative force in the way that say, Ken Williams was at Sierra in its early days. Doug Carlston did program the first couple of games that Broderboon did, but he very quickly ceded that role to people who were far more adept than he was. But he created these kind of first couple of games in the backwoods of Maine, and then kind of when he was at a loss of what to do, he decided to make a cross-country trek to see his brother Gary, who was in Oregon. Gary had kind of flitted from thing to thing. He had majored in uh, Scandinavian literature, I think, or Scandinavian studies. He had been involved in a couple of business ventures. He took a couple of years off to go to Sweden and coached a girls' Swedish basketball team or a women's Swedish basketball team to a national championship, just because why not? (laughs) (laughs) You might say that that be considered just about any hetero male's dream job going over and having a bunch of Swedish athletes that you're coaching every day. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) He had been doing some other things. He'd been working for March of Dimes in Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, and he was kind of burned out on that. He was looking for something new. So everyone was looking for something new. And so Doug was like, why don't you go into business with me and we'll do this company and we'll sell my games and, you know, let's see what happens, right? What happens, happens. 
so we won't go into the whole story of kind of the ups and downs of the first couple of years of Broderbund because that's a different episode. But they started selling some games. They weren't terribly successful in the beginning. They got a Japanese connect and got some really good Japanese games that were ports of arcade games. Then they started doing a little better with that. Then they got, you know, a few more games from local American talent, and they finally got enough games, you know, that they had a, a few big hits. They had the Alien Rain, which was a, I think, Galaxian clone, and it was a big hit. And they had Choplifter, which was a Defender-style game, uh, but it was a huge hit. In 1983, they had Load Runner, and that was a even bigger hit. You know, they slowly kind of built up this series of hits. They eventually moved out of Oregon because it was hard to ship from Oregon. There was too much fogs, which would often delay shipping. So they moved down to California after a, a year or two. So they were another one of these California-based companies. It was a period of time when the computer game industry was very much family. So Broderbund was family. Even the name Broderbund. It's a made-up word in the sense that the way they spelled it was unique to them. But it was basically derived from an Afrikaans word meaning brotherhood. Because Doug Carlston, these people did all sorts of things before they did this company. Doug Carlston had taught language in Botswana for a while. <laughs> really? In the in the sixties, I think. <laughs> they just they did all these things, coaching Swedish basketball teams, teaching language in Africa. Really diverse people. <laughs> exactly. So the name essentially meant brotherhood, even though, like I said, the exact way that they spelled it was was a made up word. It essentially meant brotherhood. Their sister joined the company about a year or so in, Kathy Carlston. She was kind of burnt out on her job in the fashion world. So she came to do administration and marketing and help out with that kind of thing. They were really a brotherhood and the industry was really a brotherhood. Sierra and Sirius and... Broderbund and some of the other companies that were kind of around in California back in this day, there was a real family feel to it. They would exchange information, exchange ideas, exchange technology, and kind of keep up on what each other was doing. There's this very famous whitewater rafting trip where a bunch of the people from all of these companies just got together and went whitewater rafting together. And I believe the Carlstons were a big part of organizing that trip. I think they're the ones that organized it. So they were family. They saw the larger industry as family. And, you know, they were really good people in that sense. So take us to 1983 now. And the industry is beginning to change a little bit. It's beginning to get a little more competitive. I mean, it's always competitive. They were always competitors. But it's becoming a little less of that kind of everybody knows everybody folksy friendly thing. A little more cutthroat. Well, you have the business people coming in more and more. I mean, Electronic Arts has been established. Activision has moved from VCS games into home computer games. So the industry is growing up a little bit. It's becoming a little more serious. And you have to be a little more organized to kind of make it. These early companies relied a lot on kind of outside talent. Broderbund particularly relied on outside talent. They had a couple of employees, but most of the stuff that they were getting in was submissions from the outside. They were more publishers and distributors as opposed to actual programmers of the game. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's in contrast to Sierra, which also relied on outsiders. But when they found someone they liked from the outside, they would try to bring them in and assimilate them into the Sierra culture. 
it was a system based on royalties at the time. Everything was based on royalties. Even Sierra, when they would bring young guys into the foothills of the mountains there, um, they were still paying royalties. And most games were done by a single programmer who did everything. If they needed art, they did the art. If they needed sound, they did sound. Electronic arts obviously operated somewhat in the same way, in the sense that they had outside artists. They didn't have the artistic talent or the programming talent as people within the company. But at this point, with it becoming more competitive, it's clear that you need a little more support infrastructure for that. I mean, Electronic Arts case, they did this with their artist workstations and their technical staff that they employed that could help the outside teams they were working with come up with stuff. And Broderboon didn't do anything exactly like that. But Broderboon kind of realized, the Carlstons kind of realized in this period that they needed some in-house talent in order to help the people that were giving them submissions and in order to port efficiently across systems as well. Because we've talked about this before. If you're big creative guy and you've got all these game ideas, you just want to go on to the next big game idea. You don't want to take the game idea you already did and port it to five other computer systems. Right. And back then, the computer systems were much more diverse than they are now. Today, you have three, pretty much, Linux, Mac, and Windows. Back then, you had Apple, ERS-80, DOS, PC, Apple, Commodore, Commodore 64. For a while, Texas Instruments was in there. You know, just a lot of formats. It was a lot of different ways to have computing going on. Exactly. So you needed some people in-house to do that. And you need some people in-house to help with game ideas. Because another thing that Broderbund was really good at is a lot of publishers in those days, especially I think this was true across the pond with the British scene more than it was with the American scene. But still. A lot of publishers in those days that relied on submissions, you would submit them some games and they'd go through them. And if they saw something they liked, they'd sign it. And if they didn't like it, they'd put it in the rubbish heap or whatever. The people at Broderbund would actually give feedback. If you gave them a game and they thought there was potential there, they would write back and they would say, we kind of like your game, but I don't think it'll sell the way it is. Why don't you try doing this, this, and this, and then resubmit it, and we'll see what we can do. Maybe after it's resubmitted, they still don't think it'll sell. I mean, that's fine. They may reject it outright at that point, but they were very keen about working with people, working with programmers and developers to refine their game ideas. They were very much about supporting their outside developers if they needed it. It wasn't the electronic arts model where they had all of this kind of spelled out with lots of technical help. but. If somebody needed a space to finish a game, they would give them a space to finish the game. And then they'd have access to the in-house staff that would be there, too, that could help them out. Jordan Mechner, he wasn't an employee of the company when he did Karateka and Prince of Persia, but he did end up working in the Broderbund offices for a while. You know, they gave him a space to help kind of finish the game up. So it, it wasn't the same thing as Electronic Arts. Electronic Arts took this a lot further in terms of artist workstations and a producer for your product that's going to be with you every step of the way, and technical teams that are ready to help you out if you need it. It wasn't that formal, but they were a company that really did want to help out and kind of work collaboratively with these people making these outside submissions to make the games better. That makes sense. So who was the person that actually submitted the idea that became Carmen Sandiego? 
So it was actually in-house people. That's why we're kind of building up this idea that in 1983, Bruderbund is starting to bring talent in-house, not necessarily to create games, but to help enhance the outside submissions. They bring in some programmers, for instance, and one of the programmers they bring in is a guy named Dane Bigham. Dane Bigham was blown away by Choplifter, the game Choplifter, which was released by Broderbund, created by a guy named Dan Gorlin. And that is what kind of made him decide that he should really get in on this, get in on this whole video game thing. And he ended up interviewing with Broderbund and getting a job as a programmer. His primary job was to port games from other systems, because again, they're not really hiring inside talent. So you've got Dane Bigham there that's been brought in for this porting. In 1983, they also hire another guy named Lauren Elliott. And the interesting thing about Elliott is they brought him in specifically to be a designer, which was not the, it's just not the way things were. And we've established before that designers, as far as video games, let alone the PC era, they didn't exist. A designer for a game didn't exist. You, you had a programmer who designed everything. You didn't have someone who just, hey, I got this idea. I got this vision. Hey, coder, let's make this happen. And I'm just sort of overseeing the design of everything. Mm-hmm. Right. He wasn't brought in to be a designer in the sense that a Shigeru Miyamoto was a designer. Somebody without technical expertise who calls all the shots and then has programmers to do his bidding. He was brought in because Broderbun felt like their people that they were working with were kind of starting to run out of ideas. As we talked about, even as recently as our Williams episode, it's actually a rare combination to have a programmer that is also a very good designer. It happens. Eugene Jarvis was our example in Williams. But just like when Williams decided they needed to bring in John Newcomer because they were running out of ideas, their programmers didn't really have ideas anymore. The Carlstons brought in Lauren Elliott because they wanted someone who could help work with the programmers who were still the stars. The programmers were still the people making royalties on the games that shipped. The programmer was still the guy ultimately responsible for the game that came out. But they wanted to have somebody that could help the programmers shape designs. And so that's where Lauren Elliott came in. He was hired into the company. They also wanted to have some support when it came to graphics and and artistry as well. So they also brought in, at about the same time, an animator named Gene Portwood. Portwood was much older than the rest of these guys. He had been a Disney animator in the 50s. He had worked on Sleeping Beauty. He had a lot of technical chops as far as animation goes. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, Disney went through a very hard time during the uh, the Sleeping Beauty era because that movie was so expensive. I mean, Disney animation really almost closed down at the end of the 50s, beginning of the 60s. 101 Dalmatians, which was a lot more simply animated overall <laughs> compared to Sleeping Beauty, which had come out just two or three years before, kind of saved the company because they were able to do that one relatively cheaply and it was a big hit. That's a bit of a tangent. Because Disney was kind of struggling in that period, Gene Portwood ended up getting away from the whole Disney animation thing, which is why he ended up working for Broderbund, ended up in the 80s being available to do that. Lauren Elliott and Gene Portwood were both very creative guys. They were practical jokers. 
they liked the same kind of pop culture stuff, comic books and animation and all of that. So they really bonded well together and they became kind of the creative center in this time period of Broderbund. So they would just have these very creative conversations with each other where they would just spitball on ideas. Their office came to be known as the rubber room because it was just a place where you bounce ideas off of each other. That's why rubber. You know, the rubber room concept started basically as them just walking and talking in hallways and just collaborating all the time. And then they had an office together. And so the rubber room kind of became a literal place where they would bounce ideas. And so they became part of the creative center of the company in this 83, 84 time period. At the same time, you have Dane Bigham off on his own, who's this guy that's been brought into port games and whatnot. He's a programmer and, you know, porting's all fine and good, but he's also thinking about what can I do? He wants to have his own product that comes out. Right. And as so many people were in this era, he's thinking about, I love adventure games. Adventure games were very, very popular during this time. But that darn parser. And so many people have done that. I mean, that's what drove Ron Gilbert with Monkey Island as well. That darn parser. Can't we do something about that? We're on the Apple II now. We have a system that is decent graphically, especially for something like an adventure game, because as we've discussed in our hardware episode, the Apple II didn't do sprites. It was just a bitmap. With the bitmap graphics, you could do pretty nice graphics for the time and, and decent animation for the time. So we have a graphical computer like the Apple II that we're focusing on. Why are we still doing parsers? Why are we still doing text? Why not a menu-driven interface for an adventure game? I presume because a menu-based interface means that at this period of time, technically, you're probably going to end up with a more simplistic adventure game. Why not make that an adventure game for kids? I know we wanted to make an adventure game for kids. I'm kind of connecting my own dots with the idea of the simplicity lent itself to a kid's game, but I think that's probably a pretty safe bet. So he starts working on this menu-driven interface for a children's adventure game. That's how it starts. You'd have a window down here with commands, and then you'd have a window over here that's the scene, and you choose your commands over here, and when you do that, something changes on the screen over here. You have already can already see that's kind of the basic layout of Carmen Sandiego. The, the original, we're talking now, Apple II Carmen Sandiego, which, of course, we'll put a bit of in the show notes. You have kind of this big window that shows the scene, this other window that's got a summary of things, this window that shows you where you can go, this window that has commands in it that you can select from. I may have already put in two more windows than there are. I don't know. But the point is, it's a menu-driven adventure game system where you have various graphical windows on the screen where if you choose something here, something may happen over there, etc. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. So he's got this, and he takes it to the rubber room. The idea place. Exactly, to flesh out what this game is going to be. So that's when Lauren Elliott and Gene Portwood get involved. Now, there's a little bit of contradiction, unfortunately. It seems like there often is in video game history. Three people, 20 stories, right? <laughs> that's a lot of permutations. Yes. Oh, I just mean you get three people in and they tell 20 different stories about what happened. <laughs> well, yes, yeah. you have the each individual viewpoint, plus the story may change as time progresses. Right. So there's a little bit of confusion as to what happened next. 
Dane Bigham, he talked to uh, David Craddock recently in his book on Apple II games. Dane says that, you know, certainly he went there and he brainstormed with them. But the game that he talks about is a cops and robbers game. All along, his idea was some kind of cops and robbers game. It's not what we have yet. There's not this geography element to it. There's not this world travel element to it yet. He had this idea of a cops and robbers game all along where these robbers are stealing items at first two at a time. Then he simplified it down to one at a time. And you're trying to track them down, keep track of where they are and track them down. So that's the game that he says was being spitballed with Elliot and Portwood during this time period. Elliot, and they haven't been interviewed together, so I don't think anyone's ever asked the two of them to like corroborate their stories. Elliot, in an interview that he gave that's reproduced in a, in a case study that was done on the, the making of the game at Stanford, talks about how they started out with this idea that involved Henry VIII. It was called the Six Crowns of Henry VIII, and you were trying to track down these crowns, I think, actually in Tudor times, actually when Henry VIII was alive. You know, it was like set in Tudor England, is the sense that I get. It doesn't sound like the two of them are talking about the same thing. I mean, yeah, technically, maybe the original Cops and Robbers game was someone stole Henry VIII's crowns and you were tracking them down, but that, that's not the sense that I get. It would be nice for someone... Whether that's me or someone else to like re-interview Lauren Elliott or re-interview Dane Bigham and try to figure out what's going on here. The, the other possibility is that it could be that both of these ideas were in development at the same time. So these might not even be contradictory things. It may be that Dane was working on his thing with the cops and robbers and at the same time Elliott and Portwood were brainstorming this other stuff. And so it may not even be contradictory. Maybe they were doing these things in parallel. Maybe somebody's misremembering. The important thing is, is at this point, we're talking about an adventure game that does not have this geography component. That's not there yet. The geography component comes in in the middle of this brainstorming process. Nobody knows exactly when, nobody remembers exactly when, but the whole project turns when Gary Carlston, you know, one of the Carlston brothers that founded the company, came in and said, why don't we do this with a geography theme? You see, back in the 50s, the Carlston family had had the opportunity to travel Europe a bit. And the Carlston kids, Doug, Gary, really loved geography. And they would play these little games with themselves, like before going to bed or whatever, where they were essentially quizzing each other on the location of things. Little geography trivia game. And so Gary saw this game coming together, this cops and robbers thing, this easy interface thing, this targeted a kid's thing, and was like, you know, when we were kids, we really liked doing this, you know, geography trivia stuff, so why don't we make it a geography-based game? That's exactly what they did. And at that point, they brought in a writer, actually, to flesh out the world and flesh out the story of this game, because at this point, you're going to need a lot of writing that you want to try to kind of make interesting because you're going to have to have witnesses on the scene that are describing what they heard or saw and whatnot. And so you don't necessarily just want your programmer or your artist trying to come up with all the pros you're going to need because maybe they don't do a good job of making it sound so good. I don't know. But well, you, you need someone who has a narrative bent to them in order to come up with, how am I going to make it so that 
this is a believable crime scene. This is a believable witness. This is a believable criminal. Exactly. They decided to bring in a writer at this point by the name of David Siefkin. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. S-I-E-F-K-I-N. It was one of these strange connection things, which is what's going to come up a couple of times in this story, because David's wife was taking a cooking class with another woman that worked at Broderbund. And so somehow through that whole grapevine of things, Broderbund knew that he was a writer and they needed a writer. So they came to him to ask if he'd kind of flesh out this world and flesh out this concept with the whole, let's take a cops and robbers game and give it a geography theme. And it was also, I think, the Carlstons that came up with the idea that it should be based on a book. And I mean, it's, it's kind of logical that they would do that. I don't know the exact creative process that went into that. If you're wanting to teach people about these places, if you want to drop clues, well, not necessarily teach, but if you want to quiz people, let's put it that way, because it's not an educational product. Let's remember that. If you want to quiz people about places like this, you need there to be a way for them to, to quote unquote, check their answers. But if you just make it a multiple choice thing in the game or something like that, then either you just learn that it's C right away or whatever after a few tries, or you decompile the game and you figure out the answer this time is A, the answer, you know, it it doesn't really engage you with the material. It was a love of geography and also a love of travel that kind of led Gary Carlston to want to do the game this way. So they came up with the idea that they really needed to have it based on a book, as in you needed to have a place where you could go for all the answers. They were originally going to use the Time Life series of Great Cities books, and then they changed the concept to the World Almanac at some point, and that's probably because the World Almanac's one handy-dandy book that has a lot of facts in it. So that's something that you can actually bundle with the game, which they did. <laughs> I still have my copy of Carmen Sandiego on five and a quarter floppy. For all I know, the floppies don't work anymore, but I still had that game on IBM PC on five and a quarter floppy back in the 80s, and it came with the 1998 World Almanac. And you needed that for reference. Exactly, because you couldn't go to the internet for this stuff. You had to have a place where you could look stuff up, but it needed to be outside of the game, because if it was all inside the game, then you wouldn't necessarily have to engage with the material. You could cheat more easily. Siefkin was really drawn to this, because he himself was also a world traveler. He had gone on a nine-month trip around the world, and he liked the idea of learning about cultures and learning about other places, and he wanted to inspire kids to maybe want to have those experiences too. Again, it's still not an educational game. It's a game. This is something that is purely meant for fun and enjoyment. Maybe some people would consider the Carlstons weird that they thought quizzing each other on geography back in the day was fun when they were kids. Sounds fun to me, but then I'm that kind of guy. Yes. But um, that may just scream education to most people. But this was actually a pleasurable activity that the Carlstons did. And so he was looking for a fun thing that could be tied into this game. It was not an educational thing. And same with Siefkin. He was looking at fun. He wanted to create something that, sure, might inspire kids to want to see the world. But it wasn't about teaching them about the world, really. I mean, you you learn accidentally by playing the game, but they didn't come at it from the perspective of, we are going to teach you these facts about these countries. 
we don't have any kind of specific goal in mind as far as what we're teaching you, if we're teaching you it. Eh, you probably already know this anyway. If not, you got this book to look it up in and away we go. And if you happen to learn something along the way, fantastic. If not, meh. Exactly. And, and that's really why it works. So he came up with the format of it. He's the one that developed these ideas, maybe cops and robbers, maybe geography, maybe menu-driven interface, which Dane Bigham had created. He's the one that took all these ideas that came from Bigham, Elliot, Portwood, Gary Carlston, etc., and distilled them into kind of what the format of the game would be. I'm sure he continued to interface with the others as well in some of this. I don't know that he deserves all the credit. But he kind of came up with this idea that you would start in one location somewhere in the world, you'd get a clue, and then you would interpret that clue to go someplace else. There would only be a certain number of places you could go from where you were, so if you ended up making the wrong choice, you could go back and try going another, you know, you didn't just have the whole world in front of you. They tried to funnel people a little bit, but you were on a time limit, so if you got it wrong too many times you would lose the case. You were allowed to backtrack and try again. It was made for kids, so it was made to be very forgiving. It wasn't a Sierra death around every corner kind of game. But eventually, if you took too long, if you took too many wrong steps and had to keep backtracking, you'd run out of time. That was the kind of constraint. You'd visit places in this one location, get some clues, look them up in the almanac. It might say, I saw this strange guy and I saw he was converting all of his money into this currency. So it's like, aha, so where the place he's going next is the country that has this currency. So you know you only have a certain number of places you can go, so you don't have to check the whole almanac. Let's say you have three countries you can leave to from where you are now. So then you would go to the world almanac entries of those three countries and see which one has the currency that the person is changing their money into. And that gives you the clue of where he went next. And so then you go there and you follow his trail there. You find a witness and get another clue, and so on. And some of the clues are easier, some of the clues are harder. Some of the places are more common places that even kids might know something about, like London or Paris, and some of them are more obscure places, like random places in Africa. You would kind of, through this trial and error, figure out where the person is going and keep up with them. Oftentimes, in the various games, you would also have to do certain other things on the side, like identifying the suspect. So, You didn't just get clues about where they might go next, but they may say that the mysterious person with blue eyes was changing his currency, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. And so it's like, okay, so he has blue eyes so that you would put that in your little suspect profile. And then when you had enough distinguishing features, it would tell you which criminal you were going after because you actually had to both find the criminal and have a warrant to arrest the criminal. And you got the warrant by figuring out distinguishing features to figure out which member of Carmen's gang did the crime, and then you tracked him down by following the clues around the world. That was the gameplay of where in the world is Carmen Sandiego. They didn't know at the time that Carmen Sandiego was going to be the one. They brainstormed a lot of ideas for names, and they had various Broderbund staff pose for pictures to represent these cast of criminals, they weren't necessarily looking for a lead criminal when they were in the process of developing this game, but for whatever reason, the concept of Carmen Sandiego, that particular criminal, which was just one of many that they created for the game, kind of resonated, and so they decided to make her kind of 
the leader, the head bad guy of this criminal syndicate. And so you would arrest lesser members of the gang and then eventually kind of the quote unquote end point of a particular game, a series of cases would be when you actually arrest Carmen herself. And she's very distinctive with the red coat and red hat. Exactly. The name came from Siefkin. He wanted someone that seemed a little exotic. Now, remember, at this time, she's not the villain. She's just a villain. But he wanted an exotic and interesting name for this particular character. He took it from the singer Carmen Miranda, and he took it. He had a friend that had a St. Bernard dog named Carmen. So he took that name Carmen from those. And I guess just the fact that Carmen San Diego just sounded kind of exotic and mysterious is the reason why the other Broderboon designers kind of latched on to her to be a central character. They kind of decided they wanted there to be a character in there that girls could relate to as well. I mean, yes, she's a criminal, okay? So um, (laughs) maybe that logical through line seems a little bit strange, but they wanted characters that were appealing to girls as, as well as just to guys. And so the idea of having a woman be the character with the name in the title and the name on the box just kind of made sense for whatever reason. That's about all the insight from the people I've seen interviews with that I have on on why Carmen San Diego. But she was basically just one of several characters that Siefkin came up with. And then the game designers picked her to be the lead star because Siefkin was just writing the script, kind of the flow. But it was Portwood and Elliot that were really defining how the game would look, feel, advance, etc. The writing was just being done by Siefkin. And then Bigham was doing the programming. Bigham thought the game was going to be a disaster. He was not happy being on the game at all. He wanted to quit, and he did leave Broderbund soon after the game shipped because he was not happy being on the project. He thought it had morphed into something completely unrecognizable from his original idea, and he just wanted out. But he did stick around to finish it at least. So this is kind of the team that puts this game together. It's released in 1985, and for something like eight months, just nothing. It just, it dies in the marketplace. Nobody cares. And it's kind of easy to see why. I mean, it's, it's not your typical kind of fun game for the time period. It doesn't really, even though it had its roots as an adventure game, it wasn't... You're it not wasn't, really adventuring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're at an interface where you see the world map. You have some vague clues to go off of. There's nothing where you move a character around or anything. It's more, I select where I want to go, and then I do some interviews, maybe ask some questions or whatever from a menu, and then... You have a book you have to read through. Yeah, reading? (laughs) That sounds like school. School is a dirty word for a kid. So it really kind of sinks in the marketplace. Nobody notices it. But then a funny thing happens. And that funny thing is the teachers on their own, without Broderbun marketing to them at all, start picking up on the game and using it in the classroom because some teachers that were computer game fans bought it for their own entertainment. And so then they play it and they're like, you know, this would be really good thing to use with my kids. So then they bring it in to use with their kids. And then little Johnny plays it in school and has fun with it. I mean, there's nothing that says that a computer game that you play in school can't be fun. So little Johnny plays it and has a good time. 
And then so little Johnny tells mom and dad, hey, I played this really neat game at school and I'd really like to have that and play it. And so little Johnny's parents are like, well, if he played it in school, that must be an educational game. So we should definitely encourage little Johnny in his playing educational computer games. And so then mom and dad buy the game for little Johnny. So then it just kind of snowballs. Word of mouth. It gets to the PTA. The PTA goes, hmm, let's promote this game because, ooh, look at the education. Exactly. So later on, believe me, after this phenomenon happens, Broderbund realizes, oh, shoot, we need to be marketing this game to schools. And they eventually start doing it. But that is not at all what they did. It was completely accident. It was completely viral marketing in a time that we, you know, wouldn't even know what viral marketing is. It was not even viral. I mean, it's word of mouth, like you said. Mm -hmm. It just kind of snowballs. A few teachers buy it. Then they bring it to school. Their kids play it. Then their kids want to buy it. Then it starts getting positive press because, hey, here's this educational game. And it's just kind of. And it's fun. Right. And it, and it is fun. I mean, I loved the Carmen Sandiego games when I was a kid. We had a PC that wasn't particularly adept at games. Or did I even have that on our Apple clone? I think I had it on the PC. But either way, I was a Nintendo game player primarily, and I didn't really play computer games, games on computers until the 1990s. But Carmen Sandiego, I had where in the world, where in Europe, where in the USA. I loved playing those games. If you were an inquisitive kid who was interested in the world, you know, a kid of like seven, eight, nine years old, somewhere in there. It's just a great fun game because in a time before you had the Internet that could bring you this, where you could just go look at pictures of other countries or whatever on the Web. It was a window into other places, other real places. That's actually kind of a lot of fun. I mean, it may feel a little simplistic today, especially since if you were to play it today, you could just go on Wikipedia and find the answers in 10 seconds or do a Google search and find the answer in 10 seconds to the questions. Yeah. What currency is this? Right. But in that time, it felt like you were unlocking a whole world beyond your study or your bedroom or wherever you had your computer. That was a pretty powerful thing for a kid once they were exposed to it, once they realized what it was. And so they would get exposed to it at school and then they'd want to have it in the home. But like I said, Broderbund had no idea that that was going to be the way that they spread this game. It just kind of happened. And there was also one other thing that happened that was very important to this process. Carmen Sandiego was an Apple II game. That was its native platform. Obviously, they ported it, but it was an Apple II game. In early 1986, Apple, which had always been very keen on being in the educational market from way back, initiated a trade-in program where any school that had handy computers, Commodore computers, Texas Instrument computers, whatever computer that that school had decided to buy whenever they bought computers, or even older Apple computers that they had, they could trade those in to get a substantial discount on a newer Apple II computer. So this is kind of the time period right here in 86, 87, when suddenly, because of this trade-in program, every school in existence suddenly has a whole bank of shiny new Apple IIe computers sitting in their computer rooms. And this wonderful educational game to go with it. Right. So 
this created this environment where the teachers could introduce the game easily. If Where in the World in Carmen Sandiego had been introduced on Commodore 64 first, it would not have necessarily had that same effect because schools in this time period, if they weren't already Apple schools, they were fast becoming Apple schools because Apple was big on the education market. Apple always marketed to them. And now Apple was doing this big trade-in program where you could get newer Apple computers at a substantial discount by trading in your old computers, whether those were Apple computers or not. They wanted to be the educational computer because they knew that if kids were exposed to them at school, that that would be the computer that they would be most likely to lobby to have in the home. I mean, you remember those days. I mean, I do. If you were if you had a computer lab in your school, it had Apple IIe computers. Yes, it did. <laughs> and it would have Apple II computers way past the life of Apple II computers. Exactly, because Apple made it so easy to purchase them. You know, it's a big investment for a school to suddenly replace all of their computers. So schools did obviously slowly do it. They slowly started moving towards getting modern PCs when we got to the PC era. But that was a major investment, and Apple just made it so easy to buy Apple II computers. Right. And we're talking about a lot of money here. We think computers these days cost a lot in the past. It was very true that computers cost significantly more for significantly less capabilities and power. When you're spending a high-end gaming system now for anywhere from 1000 to 1500 for a moderately high-end gaming system, you spend that for just one Apple II. Mm-hmm. Maybe more, especially if you want the accessories that go with it. So with all of the support from the school and a retargeting of their marketing towards schools, they actually did start creating packages of the game and its sequels for schools, you know, specifically marketed there. With all of that together, by 1989, they'd sold one million units. Which is insane for a PC it is. back in that day. Now, that's over the course of four years, but that just goes to show that they had an evergreen franchise here, something that is not going to be your typical game where you sell most of what you're going to sell in the first two or three months. Maybe you make a little more of it on the back end with a budget release, but then you're pretty much done. The game's forgotten. You might still find it in the store, but it's not really driving sales. Back catalog sales are not that large. No, this is an evergreen product. We're just going to keep selling year after year after year. And that became their strategy with not just Carmen Sandiego, but also with Print Shop, which was exploding in popularity at the same time. Broderbund kind of refocused its activities around generating evergreen franchises that they could update with sequels and more advanced versions and whatnot and just keep the money rolling in because it has a certain timeless quality. In Print Shop's case, because everyone needs clip art in mm-hmm. this time period, and it's, again, pre-internet. You can't just go find public domain clip art online and then throw it into a program, you know. Um, and then in the case of Carmen Sandiego, because education is always a thing and you're always getting new students into the schools. So every few years you've refreshed your audience for the game. Now, that means you have to keep it refreshed. And they did that. They very quickly created a sequel where in the USA is Carmen Sandiego. Then they did where in Europe. They did where in time. They did all of these sequels. They even were looking to take it into even crazier places. They were planning to not just have a where in the USA, but they were going to do different versions for all 50 states, presumably that they could market primarily to schools in each of the 50 states. 
So they did. Where in North Dakota is Carmen Sandiego? Where in Illinois is... Well, no, 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 no. They actually did. Where in North Dakota is Carmen Sandiego? Oh. It was the pilot project for this idea. That didn't do well enough. They didn't create any follow-ons. There are no other state-based Carmen Sandiego games. Apart from North Dakota. Yes. (laughs) And obviously they didn't keep that one updated and refreshed. It's just, it's an idea that they had that didn't work out. But that just shows the depth of crazy they were getting into on this product. By 1989, they've got the hit video game franchise, or computer game franchise. But again, that's, that's really all they're thinking of doing with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's what it is. They make computer games, and it's a computer game, so they're going to do computer games. And it worked well. We have this everlasting market. Kids like the game because it's entertaining. Parents and teachers like the game because it's educational. And we have new kids coming down the pipeline every year. Right. But then a funny thing happens. The U.S. Department of Education, or some similar department, I forget who exactly, released a report that said that something like 94% of American school children did not even know basic geography. So this threw the educational world into a tizzy. It's terrible numbers. I mean, it was horrific numbers. So WGBH in Boston, which is one of the flagship PBS television stations, wanted to do something about that, wanted to address this problem. Because, of course, PBS has always been involved in particularly early childhood education with many of its programs. Whether that be 321 Contact or Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers Neighborhood or Whatever PBS is doing for the kids these days, obviously, my knowledge is based on what they were doing in the 80s, early 80s. Yeah, and I'm not over at my nephews enough in order to know what the cool kids are doing these days. And it just so happened that the producer at WGBH that was responsible for creating the response to this or whatever knew Gary Carlston. There was a personal connection there. And so they knew about Carmen Sandiego, and they knew someone they could contact about Carmen Sandiego, and they thought that the kind of perfect way to address this geography thing would be to do a game show on geography, but with the Carmen Sandiego theme on top of it, because this time Carmen Sandiego's already hit property. You have this computer game about geography that sold a million, maybe even two million copies by this point, and all the kids know from school. It just makes sense if you're going to do a geography program that you'd harness that. And so through this personal connection, they do the deal to do the game show, which is the big, I think, probably the more famous. There are two shows. We're going to do the other. But I think that's probably the more famous of the two. And that came out in late 1991 and stayed on the air all the way through 1995. I remember watching it as a kid. Mm -hmm. What do you remember? Describe, Describe the show a little bit for our listeners. Well, I have a terrible memory as a species, but um, I remember you'd have usually two teams, usually a pair of kids for each team. They would answer a series of questions given to you by the host, and you're trying to do this entire crackdown thing of Carmen Sandiego. And then whichever team beat the other one would then actually go against Carmen Sandiego, and they would have to run around this board map or something and find where Carmen Sandiego actually was by answering some sort of geography question in rapid succession. 
Right. Exactly. So it was really popular. And they had the musical group Rockapella do a theme song for the show and other music throughout the episodes as well. And that theme song, which was very darn catchy, we'll put that in the show notes. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Exactly. And so that became a hit on its own because then Rockapella sought permission from Broderbund to actually do a record based around that stuff because that song was so catchy. So then they had the record. There was a board game because University Games saw that show and thought it would be interesting to do a board game. So then there was a board game. So it almost entirely by accident became this multimedia property. They were not looking to license. Broderbund did not go out and try to find licensing partners. Because of the state of education in the United States of America at the time, partners found them. People were like, you managed to do educational entertainment right. People like it. We're going to make sure that this thing is spread everywhere. And then in 1996, Congress decided to crack down and strengthen and really enforce an FCC regulation that had been on the books since the early 90s that said that children's entertainment, cartoon entertainment, needed to include some type of educational value in it. There was this idea that children shouldn't just be watching Saturday morning cartoons and rotting their brain on the old boob tube. The idea was that kids needed to be taught things, even if the main purpose wasn't teaching things. There had to be a lesson involved somewhere with the show. There had to be educational content in children's programming because, heaven forbid, children just watch something for amusement only. Like their parents or something. And that's why we get those fun things in the 90s of after the episode. Today we had this episode on blah, 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 blah. And you had like G.I. Joe show up and go, oh, body massage. Um, <laughs> about that. Now we have to put that in the show notes just because it's fun. But, you know, G.I. Joe, for instance, had the and now we know kind of public educational segments at the end of each episode. They were like two minutes long, like, you know, don't approach rabid dogs or don't steal stuff or or whatever. That and then, down power line. Don't go near it. Right. And so then somebody on YouTube, one of the earlier YouTube memes, decided to overdub them with crazy stuff. So pork chop sandwiches. Yes. And then uh, also around that same time, you had the Animaniacs who did the parody of it doing the Wheel of Morality. <laughs> right. Of course, ironically, there was a lot of educational content on Animaniacs. Yes. So they could make fun of it at the same time. Exactly. Because in 1996, there was this crackdown where this law had already kind of existed, but now the FCC was really going to enforce it, like super seriously. Animation companies, cartoon companies were again, on the lookout for really, really educational fare. So that's how we get the cartoon, Where on Earth is Carmen Sandiego? Again, Broderbund wasn't like, well, the quiz show's done so well for us. Next step is to make a children's cartoon. Broderbund was not involved in any of this. I've talked to the head of marketing and licensing at the time, Susan Lee Marrow, who did these deals. You know, obviously Broderbund was happy to do these deals, but Susan Lee Merrow was not going out to these companies and being like, okay, we've got the, the educational quiz show, we've got the board game, we've got the Rockapella record, now it's time for the cartoon. 
This is not what was going on at Broderbund. It was other people coming to them because you had something that merged education and fun in a way that kids happened to relate to. Which, again, wasn't even Broderbund's initial goal when they made the game in 1985. (laughs) Which is really, really astonishing just how crazy this is and how it snowballed into the massive franchise it was during the 90s. So Deke Entertainment comes to Broderbund and is like, oh my gosh, we've got to have this educational content because they're really checking up on this. So we'd like to do a cartoon show based around Carmen Sandiego. And so that show runs from 1994 to 1999. And it's all because of this Children's Television Act that Congress is really keen on enforcing. And so now it's a multimedia franchise that nobody was ever really looking to do, that nobody ever really expected. And now Carmen Sandiego products, you know, they outlived Broderbund. Broderbund vanished in the late 90s in a series of takeovers. Carmen Sandiego continued on. There have been well north of 6 million copies. And that 6 million was at the time this case, one of these case studies was written was several years ago. It's probably higher than that now, but at least 6 million, if not more, copies of Carmen Sandiego have been sold. It's still something kids know today. Rotorbund was very quick to jump on the CD-ROM bandwagon. Mist mm-hmm. was published by Rotorbund. They didn't have anything to do with designing it, but they published it. So they knew that CD-ROM multimedia was a big deal. So they got it on CD-ROM with multimedia presentation with sound and animation and whatnot very early on in kind of the mid-90s when the CD-ROM format was just taking off. And so that extended the life of these properties into a new generation. And they just, they keep it refreshed and they keep selling. And now successor companies to Rotorbun kept selling. And it's something that many kids probably still know today, even if it's not as big, like you said, as it was in the 90s. I mean, the heyday of the licensing and everything is gone, but... No more cartoon, no more game show. All that stuff's gone, and I'm not even sure if the game can be purchased today, but the nostalgia factor is still strong. And in fact, Netflix has announced that they are going to do a Carmen Sandiego show that's going to air in 2019. The legacy (laughs) is still there, definitely, even though it's harder to get the game these days. Right. That pretty much wraps up Carmen Sandiego, I think. I mean, it was really a major thing, especially for us in the 90s. Not so much now because you have the internet the way it is, but there's certainly a nostalgia factor, a desire by some people to play it. If I could find the game, I might even buy it now. Who knows? Right. I mean, the characters kind of stayed out there a little bit. There was a game released in. 2015 called Carmen Sandiego Returns. It isn't really in the traditional vein of the old geography games, but the character is still out there and there will probably be more games in the future, especially if this whole Netflix thing ends up doing well for whoever the rights holder is these days. Do you think it's fair to say that with the advent of the internet in the late 90s, early 2000s, and how that really took off, that is what contributed to more of the downfall of Carmen Sandiego as a franchise of being so prevalent? I think there's something to be said for that. Certainly when the learning company took over Broderbund uh, in 1998, they got away from the original geography theme, and they started just using Carmen Sandiego in a variety of educational-type games. I think they lost the idea that 
It was a game first, an educational thing second, and tried to force feed Carmen Sandiego into all sorts of subjects. I think that's probably a big part of what killed the brand. Certainly, I think it would be very hard to revive today in the purely traditional format because the internet makes it a type of gameplay whose time has come and gone. So, yeah, I I think the internet plays a role. I think the learning company kind of losing sight of what Carmen Sandiego was supposed to be played a role. I think the fact that no matter how good or how timeless a concept feels after 15, 20 years, it's hard to be original and and maintain it, even when you always have that evergreen uh, new kids coming up in education kind of thing going on. But obviously the character herself still has some power, which is why we're, as we said, going to see this Netflix series. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, I think Carmen Sandiego could make a comeback if this Netflix series does well. It's really up to whether Carmen Sandiego can be adapted to the needs of a modern educational environment, because I think it's fair to say that the original concept that was invented all the way back in 1985 is not necessarily quite as good a fit today in this uh, wired world that we live in all right i guess that just leaves what do we delve into next time well a few months back because of the way we record these things it can sometimes take a while to respond to what we see out in the real world but a few months back we got a request from a listener yeah one of our listeners on twitter at my mac suggested us taking a look at some of the interesting lawsuits that are out there and actually sent us a link to an article that enumerated about 11 of them, I think. Right. We may mix and match. We may do the ones that are there, or we may choose a couple more to supplement or take a a couple out, but it would definitely be an interesting topic. We talked about the Magnavox Odyssey litigation. We gave that its whole episode because that's its whole round of crazy. But there are definitely several other video game court cases that are probably too small to sustain a whole episode by themselves. Not interesting enough to talk about for a whole episode, but we can string these together, maybe from that article, maybe from elsewhere, and kind of just take a look at some of the big legal events in the history of the video game industry. And certainly have lawsuits for everyone. Yes. Well, lawsuits for everyone next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com and follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcasts. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 